David, the Messiah, uh, as we know him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there are aspects of this covenant that were conditional, and yet the outcome is ultimately unconditional and unilaterally uh, guaranteed, uh, which will be fulfilled in the Messiah. Psalm 89 was written by a man named Ethan, uh, who was a contemporary of Solomon. He was known for his wisdom. He was also known as a, as a worship leader who wrote songs. And uh, some think that he wrote the first part of the psalm, which is very strong, as we saw last time, emphasizing the Davidic covenant and the greatness of God behind the Davidic covenant. And that perhaps then another descendant of his, of his ilk, if you will, wrote the last part of the psalm, since it reflects a complete change in tone and really seems to almost be questioning whether uh, God is actually going to fulfill the Davidic covenant or not. And we will look at that part tonight. It would seem that the circumstances have changed with the Davidic king no longer on the throne at this point. And so you realize... Uh, the contemporary of perhaps even David and Solomon was about, uh, you know, 400 years before the time of the Babylonian captivity. And it seems like we're talking about the time of the Babylonian captivity because it was after that time that we no longer have a king of David sitting on the throne. And that's what's being described here as you go on in the psalm. So it would seem like, oh, maybe there's a, a, a later uh, writer here. But we don't know that for absolute certain. Certainly, uh, God specializes in prophecy, and he could write prophetically uh, through anybody that he wants to. Um, but note, uh, it would seem that circumstances have changed, and with the Davidic king no longer on the throne. Things looked really dire, uh, with no change in sight. And that reflects the last part of this psalm that we will study here this evening. We laughed off last time in verses 28 and 29 where God has just promised David firstborn status. Now, uh, David was not the firstborn in his family. In fact, uh, he was the little boy, right? He was the little shepherd boy out here. And the rest of the brothers, they were all ahead of him. He was like last in line. You would think of him, no, he's not going to be uh, the first in line to be, uh, you know, in a high status of any kind. I mean, he's the little baby of the family. And yet he had firstborn status in, in terms of where God elevated him up to. But ultimately, we're talking about the position of the highest of the kings of the earth and that his covenant will stand firm with him and that his seed and his throne will endure forever. Wonderful promises made to David. And so uh, note here uh, the outline. Uh, the theme, the uh, incomparable God and his covenant to David. We have looked at a number of these things. We've worked our way through verse 29, God's covenant faithfulness. God prays for his attributes, the blessedness of God's people. God's bless, uh, God blessed King David, uh, God's covenant with David. That's what we looked at last time. Now, tonight we're going to look at, starting with verse 30 on, rehearsing God's promises to David, the covenant and the crisis, and a desperate plea for divine intervention and finally, the doxology. Well, tonight we pick uh, up our study here at verse 30. Uh, where in verses 30 through 37, again, we have a rehearsing of God's promises to David, in, including the conditional part of the covenant. Verse 30, If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, speaking of David, if his sons forsake my law, and do not walk in my judgments. If they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish 
their transgression with the rod. And their iniquity with stripes. Uh, the word statutes, uh, you know where it talks, uh, forsake my law. We kind of understand what God's law is. Uh, in my judgments, uh, my, break my statutes. Kind of a different way of saying the same thing. Uh, and do not keep my commandments. Statutes is an interesting word, though. It, it literally means to inscribe or to cut into with a nuance of permanence. Uh, it refers to God's unending mandates, precepts, or rules. So it really refers to the everlasting nature uh, of Scripture. Uh, we, in today's vernacular, might say something is set in stone. Well, the truth of God is set in stone, His statutes. Uh, they are the boundaries that God has put, uh, you know, that are <laughs> staying where they are. Uh, so it's another way of saying God's unchanging law. Well, God made an eternal covenant with David involving his heritage. So it not only just involved David directly, but also his, his household, his heritage. And uh, there were some conditional aspects to it. Uh, if David's sons forsook the law of God, God said he would punish them for it. And frankly, the entire nation would then suffer because of it. This is where the nation is today. If you, you say, well, I'm trying to understand Israel and how Israel fits into the scheme of things. This is, this is where they are today. Uh, Israel, you see, has no Davidic king seated on the throne today. Now, there's a lot of errant theology which says Jesus is sitting on David's throne today. Where is David's throne? Well, they want to say it's in heaven. It's like just one problem. We have zero scripture to back that up. Uh, David's throne is never expected to be in heaven anywhere in the scriptures. Uh, David's throne is in Jerusalem. It's in Zion. Over and over we see this in the scriptures. Uh, today there is no uh, king sitting on David's throne, and they are still languishing under the disciplinary hand of God. And much of Psalm 89 deals with this reality that is still in place to this day. They are still under discipline. Well, after David, after King David was on the throne, uh, and then Solomon, really after King David, it didn't take long for the kings to fall into sin. I mean, Solomon really fell off the, the wagon, so to speak, in terms of wives, right? I mean, uh, how many wives did he have? Too many? Yeah, yeah. Like 300 wives and 700 concubines. I mean, uh, what, what are you doing with all these women? I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, way ridiculous. And who am I to tell that to Solomon? Because he's the wisest man that ever lived outside of, you know, other than Jesus Christ. But, uh, man, he fell in a hard way, and he fell with these foreign wives in, in a big way. So serious that the kingdom was split after King Solomon. Major fall. Uh, ten of the northern tribes left uh, the Davidic leadership at that time, leaving only two tribes remaining with Davidic leadership in place. Uh, namely, Judah and Benjamin, the, the southern kingdom as we know it. Well, of the 20 kings of Judah, uh, there, were, uh, there were 20 kings of Judah, the southern kingdom. Eight of them were good. The rest of them were bad. In terms of the northern kingdom, they were all bad. So let's take a look at that. So uh, here we got the, you can't see this probably, but uh, we've got the kings of Judah and Israel, kings of Judah. Uh, you see there's some good ones in there. There's, there's eight good ones in here. Northern kingdom, all bad. And of course, this is the God-ordained line over here, uh, the kings of Judah, the, the, the sons of David. 
Continues on here, um, verse 33. Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. This is God speaking. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. Not going to lie to David. Nope. His seed shall endure forever. And his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. Selah. So what is this saying? Even though God would discipline the line of David, it would not be forever broken to where it's cut off and God's done with the line of David. That would not happen. God would not allow the covenant to be broken. God's loving kindness, and the word here is hesed, that that rich Hebrew word hesed, meaning his, his covenant faithfulness, it cannot fail. When God says he swears by his holiness, it's like saying he swears by his holy character. Uh, It's making a promise in the strongest way possible. God cannot violate his holy character. So it's it's stating it uh, in the strongest way possible. And note the language, his seed shall endure forever. His throne as the sun before me, which is a picture of enduring uh, continually. Now God is saying that even in spite of human failure in the Davidic line, Yet the covenant promises will not be broken. There will be an ultimate fulfillment of God's covenant promises to David, involving an enduring seed and throne. And this will ultimately be fulfilled in the person of the Messiah. But having said all this, the tone now changes. Verses 38 through 45, the covenant and the crisis. Verse 38 But you have cast off and abhorred. You have been furious with your anointed. I mean, this is how it appears. God has cast off, abhorred, detested. Uh, You've been furious with your anointed. Uh, The Davidic line. You have renounced the covenant of your servant. Oh, wow. What did we just say? God's never going to do this. But he says, you have renounced the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. This is why we say this is language that really depicts uh, the crown being removed from the line of David. So again, this seems to refer to the time of the Babylonian captivity, after which there was no longer a king sitting on David's throne in Jerusalem. And there hasn't been ever since the time of the Babylonian captivity. The language here is very strong. It feels to the writer like God has broken his covenant which we know is impossible because we just, he just said that. But it feels like this. And it feels like he's now done with David. It seems like God has renounced the Davidic covenant in that the, the Davidic crown has been defiled and has been cast to the ground. Uh, note uh, here my next slide here where we're talking about uh, the times of the Gentiles. Uh, This goes from the time of the Babylonian captivity, when the Gentiles really took over Jerusalem, and goes all the way until the second coming. This long period of time really is the times of the Gentiles. David's throne in Jerusalem is unoccupied during this whole time. And that's the way it is even tonight. We don't have a, you know, they've got a prime minister. Uh, They don't have a king. They don't have a Davidic king sitting on the throne. Uh, It's unoccupied. 
And the temple is unoccupied by God's presence. Now, they're going to rebuild the temple, but it's not going to be occupied by uh, uh, the God of uh, Israel, right? Who's going to occupy that rebuilt temple? The Antichrist. I mean, he's going to go in there. Let me tell you, the, the, the real God of Israel is not in there because if he was, the Antichrist wouldn't get far, <laughs> right? So uh, the temple uh, unoccupied by God's presence. Now we'll continue on until the second coming when uh, Christ himself rebuilds the temple. Uh, Jerusalem oppressed by the Gentiles. Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That's where we find ourselves. And it's been this way ever since the time of the Babylonian captivity. So the writer laments, verse 40, You have broken down all his hedges. You have brought his strongholds to ruin. All who pass by the way plunder him. He is a reproach to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword and have not sustained him in battle. You have made his glory cease and cast his throne down to the ground. God's protection over the Davidic dynasty has been removed. He's now plundered. He's an object of ridicule and abuse by all of his neighbors. Now, whereas in verse 13, God's hand was lifted high against Israel's enemies, now the hand of their enemies is exalted over them. This is the times of the Gentiles, resulting in the enemy rejoicing over them. Again, this is the times of the Gentiles, the time of the Gentiles. Israel is now the tail and not the head. We have a promise in the kingdom, they'll be the head and not the tail. But right now, they're the tail and not the head. And this is the discipline that God warned about. It has come to pass, just as he warned, if David's sons were disobedient, they would be punished. And the whole Davidic line has experienced that punishment. The whole of Israel has experienced that punishment. The military power in the house of David has also been removed. His glory has been removed. His throne has been cast down to the ground. Note in verse 39, the crown has been cast down. And now in verse 44, the throne has been cast down. The crown, the throne, they go together. And so it has been for 3,000 years. Nothing new here. That's a lot of discipline, by the way. 3,000 years worth of discipline. But again, it's in perfect harmony. Perfect harmony with the prophetic scriptures. For example, here in Hosea chapter 3, And uh, verses 4 and 5, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king. Hey, we see that. 3,000 years. Children of Israel shall abide many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or a sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord, their God, and David, their king. They haven't done that yet, but there will come a time. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. So in the latter days, and here latter days relates to Israel when they come to repentance in the the seven-year tribulation period, in the 70th week of Daniel. So it has indeed been many days that Israel has been without a king sitting on the Davidic throne. Now when the rightful king, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, when he came, they rejected him. And so the throne continues to remain unoccupied. Verse 45, the days of his youth have been shortened. You have covered him with shame, Selah. The Davidic dynasty seems to have been very short-lived in in the scope of 
uh, history. Uh, it was only in existence for about 400 years before the crown was removed in the Babylonian captivity. I mean, David was about, you know, 1000 B.C. And then you have the Babylonian uh, captivity, 586. And so about 400 years and the crown was removed in the Babylonian captivity. The removal of the king from the Davidic throne and the destruction of the temple and oppression by the Gentiles resulted in extreme shame for God's people Israel. And then he says, Selah, stop and let that sink in. It's a pause. The word Selah is a, is a pause, perhaps a musical pause, a, a thought pause, uh, a pause. Uh, stop and let that sink in. Notice the writer realizes God is sovereign over all that is happening. I want you to note this emphasis here. Um, Note this. Verse 38, you have cast off. You have been furious. You have renounced. You have profaned. You have broken. You have brought. You have exalted the adversaries. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back. You have made his glory cease. You have shortened. Who did this? Well, the writer says, God, you've done it. He's recognizing God's sovereignty over everything that's happening. It wasn't just like, oh, we just had an unlucky patch. No, no, no. God is behind this. Very strongly believes in the sovereignty of God. Make no mistake about it. Eleven times the writer says, God has brought this about. His view of God's sovereignty over the experience of the nation is very clear. Nothing happens by accident. God is sovereign over it all. This is God's doing. He has brought it about. Well, this now brings about a crisis of faith. He's very brutally honest. Uh, So to speak, brought about a crisis of faith. How, How can it be that God made such great promises to David, so strong, regarding his enduring throne, and yet this level of devastation go on and on and on? The writer struggled with God's word and the historical reality that he was seeing. How to make that jive? He struggled with the promises of God and the present circumstances that seemed to be out of sync with what God has promised. I mean, it seems like, boy, as we go along further and further and further with no relief, like, man, it's like that enduring promise to David has been broken. It doesn't continue. That's the way it seemed. Well, there's a great lesson here. And that is God's ways are not our ways. And uh, God works in view of the big picture, which in our small-mindedness we we can't see. Uh, You know, we we only have about 70 or 80 years here. It's short. And we tend to think through that short lens. But uh, the only way we can really see the big picture is by faith. And that's the lesson of Habakkuk. He had all kinds of perplexing questions that didn't make sense to him in terms of how uh, God was handling things. But then the Lord answered Habakkuk, saying, quote, The just shall live by his faith. Often in life, we don't get it. Uh, It doesn't seem like the promises of God match up with my experience, perhaps, at certain points. But there is a bigger picture uh, that God says, Trust me. I got this. Trust me. Uh, Spurgeon said this, God is too good to be unkind, too wise to be mistaken. And when you cannot trace his hand, you can trust his heart. And how true that is. That's a, that's a great statement. 
Well, verses 46 through 51, a desperate plea for divine intervention. I mean, desperate plea. I mean, this is a horrible situation. Verse 46, how long, Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? Is this just going to go on indefinitely? How long? Will your wrath burn like fire? This is the age-old question. How long, Lord? And he is right in that during the times of the Gentiles, it's, though, it's as though God is hiding himself from Israel. Even though God is faithfully preserving Israel, and he is, they don't see his miraculous intervention. They see his providential preservation, which some call a miracle, but it's actually providence, You see, from the Exodus, about 1446 B.C. until the Babylonian captivity, 586 B.C., about a thousand years, God's glory presence had uniquely guided Israel and been with Israel. During this time, God's presence was intimate and direct. And he often miraculously intervened on behalf of Israel. It's amazing to read the Old Testament stories. For a thousand years, God intervening in very special and unique ways. But starting with 605, the first siege of Jerusalem, there were three sieges, uh, 605 and 597, 586. But starting with that, really that first siege of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, things changed. Ichabod, the glory had departed. And now God's glory After departing, Israel would no longer know God's direct miraculous intervention. Instead, 586 B.C. introduced the times of the Gentiles as Babylon Babylon destroyed the temple and took Judah captive. God's covenant relationship with Israel remained intact, yes, but God now allowed his people to be taken advantage of and to be abused by the Gentiles as a matter of discipline. God's face was hidden in that sense. And that continues to this very day. I mean, the Jews do not really control the Temple Mount right now. Uh, The Gentiles do this. And the Jews, trying to make peace with them, have allowed them to do this. The last three prophetic books of the Old Testament era, namely Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, as well as the last three historical books of the Old Testament, namely Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, are all devoid of God's miraculous activity. Selah. I'm saying that. Just stop and let that sink in. After God's glory departed, he then worked providentially and not directly or miraculously on Israel's behalf. His glory had departed. This is clearly portrayed, for example, in the book of Esther, where the name of God is not even found in the whole book. Yet his providential working underlies everything that is happening in the book, right in the midst of that very extreme Gentile context. During the times of the Gentiles, this is God's consistent pattern. His face remains hidden, but he providentially continues to preserve his people Israel, including the line of David. In terms of miraculous activity, we note that when Messiah came, he presented himself to Israel. And that God's miraculous activity again became front and center as part of Messiah's credentials in presenting the kingdom to Israel. By extension, miracles also defined the apostles as they served as Christ's ambassadors 
his special representatives who also gave forth New Testament revelation. However, with the passing of the apostles, this miraculous activity again ceased. But here's what I want you to see. Note that the miracles of the Messiah and those of the apostles were not directly in reference to the physical welfare of Israel as a nation. They served as sign value related to Christ's ministry as the Messiah presenting himself. But, uh, and they did affirm uh, the apostles' ministries as his special ambassadors. However, however, throughout the ministry of Christ and that of the apostles, the Jews remained under Roman rule. Nothing changed there. The times of the Gentiles proceeded with God continuing to hide his face from his people Israel. And with his glory, his direct intervening presence on behalf of Israel, not being seen on Israel's behalf. Well, this pattern will continue until suddenly in the day of the Lord, God's glory, that is his miraculous intervening presence on behalf of his people Israel, will again be seen. Initially in a big way. In the war of Gog and Magog. I mean, this is a really big deal. As God then intervenes, it will become clear why his face was hidden for so long and why he allowed his people Israel to suffer at the hands of the Gentiles. A note here in Ezekiel, 30, uh, Ezekiel 39, 23, 24, the Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity. Why? For their iniquity. Because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore what? Therefore I hid my face from them. This was a, God allowed this to happen to them because of their sin. I gave them into the hand of their enemies and they fell by the sword. According to the, their uncleanness and according to their transgressions, I have dealt with them and hidden my face from them. Twice he says this here. Note the, the double emphasis on God's face being hidden from Israel during the times of the Gentiles. And it was because of their sin, ultimately uh, climaxing in the rejection of the Messiah. Well, will God hide himself forever? That's the question. The answer is no. Just during that long extended period of the time called the times of the Gentiles. Until the war of Gog and Magog. Uh, that will be a pivotal turning point in the history of Israel. As dealt with in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Verse 47. Remember how short my time is. For what futility have you created all the children of men. What, can, what man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his life from the power of the grave? Selah. So he's really wrestling with this in terms of the shortness of life and the shortness of time. There's a sense of desperation and urgency here that if God doesn't do something, it's over. And while it may seem like this, again, God's got the long view in the long run. And uh, he will yet fulfill his Davidic covenant promises. Still, in the throes of these dire circumstances, it didn't look like it. And the, the writer struggled. Holman Christian Study Bible says, the, the inquiry underscores the psalmist's frustration and his inability to understand the Lord's actions. Verse 49. Lord, where are your former loving kindnesses? Which you swore to David in your truth. We don't see it. Where is it? These are the pleas of desperation and questions of desperation. 
We don't always understand the why or the why so long. John the Baptist couldn't make sense of his prison experience. I mean, you're, you're preaching the kingdom's the hand, and all of a sudden you find yourself not going into the kingdom, but going into the prison cell. I mean, it's like, that's hard to understand. Many of God's people through the ages have at times been frustrated. But you always come back to faith. And that we must leave the big picture, the big picture scheme of things with God. Knowing that in the end, God will always keep his covenant promises. In the end, it will all make sense to our three-pound brains, but not necessarily right now. We must walk by faith. From our vantage point, we see more clearly than the psalmist. We didn't have all the revelation of God that we have. We see that indeed Messiah has come. We see that the Davidic line remained intact all the way through to the Messiah. And the Messiah remains intact. I mean, we know what's happened to the Messiah. He rose from the dead. He's gone back to heaven. He's still fully intact. And he's coming back one day to, to finish what has been started. Uh, notice when we get to the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 1, the, the book, this is how the book begins. So we're studying Matthew on Sunday morning, uh, Matthew 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Ah, fits the right genealogy. The throne, the crown belongs to David. Here's this one, Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Goes back to Abraham, fulfilling all those covenant promises to Abraham, and then on through David. Luke 1, 32, the angel says to Mary, speaking of Christ, he will be great and will be called the son of the highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. The throne belongs to this one you're going to give birth to. As I said, earlier Israel rejected Christ the king, and so the throne remains unoccupied still to this very day. John MacArthur says, according to the prophets, God would eventually restore Israel and the Davidic throne in an earthly kingdom. Never in the Old Testament, he says, is there a sense that this Davidic promise would be fulfilled by Christ with a spiritual and heavenly reign. And I fully concur with that. The throne of David is an earthly throne located in Jerusalem. This is the throne of David that Messiah will ultimately occupy. Well, at the very end of the book, we go to the end of the book, the book of Revelation, and we find there in Revelation twenty-two sixteen, Jesus saying, I am the root and the offspring of David. Who is he? He's the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And it's of him that we read in Revelation, as these judgments are coming upon the world, what is happening? It says, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever." And ever. The kingdoms of this world. He's going to reign over them. It is of him that God the Father prophetically says in Psalm 2.6, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. It is he who will one day come in great glory as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This is where the loving kindness, God's loyal covenant love, is to be found. It's in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true Messiah. All will yet be fulfilled in him exactly as God has promised. But the psalmist didn't see all this. And so plaintively says, 
Verse 50 and 51. Remember, Lord, the reproach of your servants, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples. With which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. The cry is for the Lord to remember, which is to say for him to intervene and remove the reproach that has long been upon the people of Israel. The ridicule of the nations has been their experience, and it is. The United Nations does not have great regard for the nation of Israel. In fact, they bring more uh, resolutions against Israel than any other nation in the world by far. And note that last line. They have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. That's an interesting line. This seems to prophetically depict the coming of the Messiah, who is the ultimate anointed one. Notice uh, Moody Bible commentary here. It ends in anticipation of the coming of Messiah, listening for the footsteps of your anointed. A rabbinic phrase for the coming of the Messiah. I love the imagery here. If you listen carefully, you can hear the footsteps of the Messiah coming. Now, the world makes fun of it. They ridicule it. It's a reproach as far as they're concerned. But we see it. We see it in the Gospels. We can hear it today in the, in the stage being set, as far as Israel back in the land. But yet, as it says in verse 51, the Lord's enemies have reproached the Lord's reputation concerning the coming Messiah. Because God has for so long held off in revealing the Messiah, the idea of Israel's Messiah coming in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant has been held up to ridicule. But just wait. Just wait. He's on the way. It's just a matter of time. I like how the International Standard Version puts Isaiah 52, 15. So he will startle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths at him. Indeed, they will. I'm going to love that. That's going to be a great day. Every mouth's going to be shut tight. Kings will shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Everybody will get it. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, coming to rule from David's throne over the whole world. And he will rule with a rod of iron. He's on the way. The Davidic covenant will be fulfilled. It has to be. And it will be. And so with this, the messianic anticipation in view, as we see here in verse 51, the psalm ends with this doxology of verse 52. Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen. Indeed, blessed be the Lord that is Yahweh forevermore. For the anticipated Messiah, the son of David, will indeed ultimately fulfill all that has been promised to David. Indeed, blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen. Let's have our closing song, and I'll close this in prayer.